0: All right, uh, it is an awesome honor and privilege and blessing to be here with you all. Um, I spoke last semester, some of you were here, I uh, got to share a little bit about Patmos and what we do, who we are, our kind of method of discipleship. Um, so today, uh, I'm not going to talk about Patmos really, Patmos is here, they're over there, they're like the... If they smell a little bit, we apologize for that. Um, It's it's the cost of discipleship. So Adam, uh, he told me that he just finished Matthew chapter 4. Um, So that was the last thing he told me. So uh, what we're going to be talking about today is Matthew chapter 5. And this really introduces the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, So this is really... um, a long teaching, the longest teaching that we see recorded in the Gospels by Jesus. It's actually three chapters. You see more consecutive red letters than any other place uh, in the Gospels. So this is actually one big teaching. We're not going to talk about all of it because we don't have time. Uh, But today, uh, my goal is to get through the Beatitudes. So that's going to be Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, okay? Uh, Before we get into the Beatitudes, I want to kind of intro the Sermon on the Mount a little bit so we have a little bit of uh, understanding and context, and then we'll dive into the Beatitudes. But before we do, let's pray. Jesus, we come before you, and we thank you so much for your word. Lord, your word changes us from within, God, and uh, this message that you have um, for your disciples, Lord, is so powerful, so convicting. God, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what your spirit has to say to each of us as individuals. God, you had so much to say to them, Lord, and it's so much to grasp. So I pray that we would honor you with the time that we have, God, knowing that we can always go deeper into your word. But I pray that um, you would get your message across to us. You're the teacher, Jesus. You're the teacher, Holy Spirit, so I pray that you would teach us right now, Lord, that we would learn from you, grow in you, and be changed forever because of the message that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, I haven't been to the services lately, so I don't know kind of the direction that Pastor Adam has been going with it. Some of the stuff I say, you might already you might already know. Um, a big thing to keep into consideration is Matthew's heart behind his gospel. Okay, What is he trying to prove? He's trying to prove Jesus' kingship. He's trying to tell us that Jesus is the long-awaited king. Okay, His message, specifically, this gospel, is for the Jewish people. We see more Old Testament prophecies... Um, referred to in Matthew's Gospel than, and, than any of the other Gospels. Because he's trying to tell the Jewish people, this is the king you've been waiting for. So we see Matthew focus on the kingship of Jesus, which is really important, and it's um, really important going into this text when we consider the context and what uh, Jesus is trying to get across to us. Um, can I get a, like a water or something? Yeah, my mouth dries up real quick. Soon, in like 20 minutes, I won't be able to say a word. Um, it would be bad. <laughs> That's how you guys read it. Okay, so it's important to understand we see um, in the chapter before, uh, Jesus is tempted by Satan. We see how he overcomes that temptation with the word of God, proving... Thank you so much, Mike. Oh, okay. You had one. That's my fault. Um proving that He is indeed the Son of God. He is the rightful heir to the throne of God. He's going to then start His ministry in Galilee. He gets rejected in Nazareth. He calls the disciples. He's starting to do ministry. And as He's starting to do ministry and gain these disciples, He has a specific message that He wants to get across to the disciples. So basically what we're going to see here in the Sermon on the Mount Uh, it's often referred to as um, the Christian Constitution or the Declaration of the Kingdom. What Jesus is going to do here is is he's going to get to the heart of the law. So often throughout uh, these three chapters, you'll hear Jesus say things like, you heard that it was said this, but I tell you this. Like you heard that it was said, yeah, you're not supposed to murder, but I'm telling you murder starts somewhere and it starts with anger. You heard that it was said you're not to commit adultery, but I'm going to tell you something. It starts in the heart, and it starts with lust. So we're going to see that Jesus is going to get to the heart of the law in this text. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, it's pretty convicting. I read it, and I'm like, this is impossible. Like, you read this, and you hear some of the things that Jesus says you're like, There's no way that I could ever do this, that I could ever live this life out. But we have to remember that Jesus didn't just cover us with his righteousness, he imparted his righteousness to us. It's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. I'll kind of summarize it. He says, He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us his divine nature. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit to live this Christian constitution out. So Jesus isn't asking us to do the impossible here. He's asking us to recognize the impossible and realize we can't do it without him. And that's the point. He's trying to bring that to light. You can't do this without me. Don't try. You're going to fail. But with me and the power of my spirit, you can operate in these things. So many scholars will suggest that um, the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' main teaching, and all the other teachings that he, that he had stem from this main teaching. Uh, in fact, William Barclay, uh, he notes that in, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Then he opened his mouth and taught them. That, that word taught there is in the imperfect tense, implying that this was something that Jesus taught on a regular basis. This wasn't just a one-time thing. Yes, the Sermon on the Mount was a one-time thing, but the things that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount was something that he taught on a regular basis. So we're going to see here in the Sermon on the Mount that you can pretty much look at anything Jesus did in the Gospels and point it back to something that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Because he wasn't just teaching the word with his mouth, he was teaching the word with his life. And that's something that we'll get to in just a minute. But what Jesus is getting at here is is he's trying to tell us, he's trying to share with us and show us what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. Matthew's already established that this is the king. Now we're going to see what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? It's the rule of God over the hearts and lives of those who willingly, willingly submit to him. Okay, It's the rule of God over, our, over the hearts and lives of his people, really. When we think about the kingdom of God, what's in the kingdom of God? Well, when we see John in Revelation chapter 4, when he gets caught up to heaven, the very first thing that he sees is the throne of God. It's God. Okay, so it's the presence of God. So when we sum up the kingdom of God, and there's a lot to it. It's really the presence of God. It's the presence of God in the hearts and lives of his people. And that's what Jesus is bringing to the table here. And that's what he's going to communicate to us. You're a vessel to represent the kingdom of God. So is the kingdom of God, is it is it now or is it later when we look at at the text when we look at the Gospels and some of the things that Jesus says, um, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is among you. So the kingdom of God is present. But then he says, pray for the kingdom to come. It's like, wait, is the kingdom now or is it later? The kingdom of God is actually now and later as we look in the word and see that we're a representation of the kingdom of God now. The kingdom of God shall come later. And it's interesting, as we dissect the Beatitudes, there's a promise in the Beatitudes. They have a present promise and a future promise. You'll see see things like, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, I have a problem with the word shall, okay? When I say shall, sometimes I'll say shall, so just ignore that. It's a thing. I don't try to do it. It just happens. Don't make fun of me. I'm not saying shall. If it sounds like I'm saying shall, I'm really saying shall. Okay, I'll probably do it a bunch of times. You guys will laugh and I'll be like, oh, I did it. Um, So we see here that what Jesus is really getting at uh, in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It's Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at those words there our citizenship is in heaven. It already is in heaven. Like, we're already citizens in heaven, but we eagerly wait for our Savior. So we currently operate as citizens of heaven as we look for our Savior and the kingdom that is to come. So what do we see? What does that mean, to, that, that, that we're called to be, to operate as Citizens of heaven. Well, what does citizens in heaven do? If you look at Revelation chapter 4, in Revelation chapter 4, I know you guys guys went through Revelation like last year, right? Yeah? Okay. So Revelation chapter 4, we see these 24 thrones that are set up with these elders that are sitting on it. And this is... Um, many scholars suggest that this represents the church body as a whole. There's a lot to this. But what are they doing? If you look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, it says, The twenty-four elders fall down, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Citizens in heaven worship the Lord. That's their call. That's what they do. All day, all night, they worship the Lord. So for us to be citizens of heaven on earth as it is in heaven means we're called to worship the Lord. We're called to worship the Lord not just with our lips but with our lives. And that's what Jesus is going to get across in this message here. He's going to show us what it means to worship the Lord with our hearts and with our lives. The be attitudes, uh, the be attitudes, be attitudes. It, it really means the blessings. Okay, that's like the Greek there. It means the blessings. Practically, it can mean the attitudes that we're supposed to be or supposed to have as Christians. Okay, these are be attitudes. Become these attitudes. Okay, if we put it in like English context. So that brings me to finally the title of this. Message, Um, worshipful attitudes lead to worshipful lifestyles, okay? Worshipful attitudes lead to worshipful lifestyles. Awesome, okay. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So, Jesus, he sees the multitudes, so he goes to get away on this mountain because he has this special message for his disciples. Okay, we're going to see later by the end of the Sermon on the Mount that these people follow Jesus up there too. So, let's look at that real quick. If you look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished. At his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribe. So there's more people that end up coming on this mountain to hear this message than just the disciples. But we know this message was specifically for the disciples, and that's why he called them up on the mountain. This is a message, the Sermon on the Mount, to all disciples, to all of us. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples not converts, right? That's the Great Commission. He calls us all to be disciples. So this is a call to the whole church body. This is a call to everyone that has a heart to seek and follow the Lord. And he takes them up on this mountain because he has a special message for them. He wants them to engage. He wants them to hear. He wants them to understand the words that he's about to say. I don't know about you, but... If I climb up a mountain, if I just walk up a hill, like I'm my mind, like my, my heart is beating fast, I'm engaged, I'm alert, I'm like more in tune of what's going on around me than when I was sitting at the bottom of the mountain. So even Jesus calling him up on the mountain, there's this effort and there's this energy that the disciples need to get up there. He wants them to be awake, he wants them to be alert. We see this throughout the scripture. God calls uh, Moses up to Mount Sinai to meet him early in the morning because he has this special message. There's something to this climbing up a mountain to meet God and encounter his presence. And we don't actually have to physically climb up a mountain to meet God, okay? He'll meet us where we're at. But we often will have these mountaintop type experiences, right? When we look at the scriptures on the mountains, God speaks clearly, right? He speaks to us clearly on the mountain. He had a clear message for Moses. Jesus has a clear message for the disciples. He wants us to pay attention. He wants us to be alert because the message is important. And we get really excited when God speaks to us on the mountain, right? You ever have those mountaintop experiences where it was like God's voice was so clear. I know exactly what he's called me to do. I know exactly what he wants me to do. It's like, dude, God just spoke to me this thing and I'm stoked about it. I'm excited. God spoke to me. Like, that's awesome. Until we have to live it out. It's like, dang, okay. It was great when I heard him. I wish I didn't almost. But he's, he brings us on the mountain to give us this message to prepare us for the valley that's to come. Because the message on the mountain is crucial for the valley that awaits. And we know these disciples are going to go through some rough valleys. Okay, uh, Picking it up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. He says, Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Interesting, he says that he opened his mouth and taught them. I think that's important to know. That's not a mistake. Why is Matthew telling us that? Because Jesus didn't just teach with his mouth, he taught with his life. He didn't always open his mouth to teach the disciples. He taught them in the way that he did life. And that's why I brought you guys uh, to remind you that, hey, in the Gospels and the things Jesus did and the miracles that he does and the uh, people that he touches the lives that he heals, we can see everything he does in the Gospels. We can point it back to the things that he says here because he didn't just teach with his mouth. He taught with the way that he did life. He worshiped God the Father with his life, not just with his lips. Picking it up in verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, this word blessed or blessed I say blessed. Um, you can say either one; you're not wrong. Uh, blessed means happy. Okay, it actually means happy in the Greek. This is what this word means. He says, "Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." And this isn't just a. This isn't like a like a happy in the worldly sense. This isn't isn't like a happy that's contingent upon my circumstances. This is uh, more like the word joy. It's a. Uh, it's not just an experience, it's a state of being. Okay, If we want to experience joy or happiness, then we have to establish a worshipful lifestyle. What does that mean? I'm a, okay, I'm a heavenly citizen. Um, my mind is focused on heavenly things. Uh, I'm focused on the Lord. I'm focused on my future destiny and not my present circumstances. Because when I'm focused on my future destiny, my present circumstances are minimized, right? We can go through some really hard times, um, really difficult situations, but our situations and circumstances, they're not what bring us to a place of joy. The Lord is the one that brings us joy. So when we're trying to find joy or happiness in our circumstances and situations, it's not real happiness, it's circumstantial. Joy comes from the Lord. Okay, He says, blessed are the happy, are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? I'm poor in spirit. I'm recognizing that there's something missing in my spirit. My my spirit is poor because it's in need. It's realizing that there's a need and there's only one person that can fill that need, and it's the king of the kingdom. It starts there. It starts with being poor in spirit. It's recognizing there's a void, and Christ is the only one that can fill this void. That's the foundation of our joy or happiness or blessedness. To be poor in spirit, and I'll get into it a little bit more in detail, but to be poor in spirit is to have a heart of humility. Okay, Poor in spirit It's really to have a heart of humility. And this is the... First point. True happiness starts with sincere humility. True happiness starts with sincere humility. Okay? Humility is the foundation of all the beatitudes. I first have to recognize my need for God before I'll ever be happy, before I'll ever be blessed, before I'll ever experience this joy that he wants me to experience. Without humility, I I don't mourn. Some of the things that he says here, I won't be comforted. I'm not meek, because that's almost synonymous with humility. I, I don't hunger for righteousness. I won't be merciful. I won't be pure in heart. And I certainly won't see God. Okay, so humility we see is the foundation that Jesus lays for the Beatitudes and for this worshipful lifestyle. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I typically use like a lot of different references. Um, sometimes I'll just say them, uh, sometimes I'll have you flip with me there. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul, he's talking about being a minister of God, but I want to point out this one thing in verse 10. He says, "...as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things." God desires that we wouldn't be so attached to the things of this world that we would realize that we have all things in Christ. It's not about the material things. It's about the needs of our spirit, and only he can fulfill those needs. He desires for us to be in a place of need. It's Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51. Verse 7, sorry, verse 16, it says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. It's interesting. God desires us to be broken. He desires us to be in that place of, Uh, of need, that place of humility. Why? Well, when we're in that place of humility, when we're in that place of brokenness, brokenness, we'll look to the only one that can fix us. We'll look to the only one that can fill that need. So he wants us in a place of brokenness, but the problem is we don't always like to be in that place of brokenness. We tend to want to be strong. We tend to want to be like, okay, if you will. But God says, be poor in spirit, be broken, because that's a vessel I can work with. That's a vessel that I'm willing to fix. That's a vessel that I'm willing to build. He desires us to be in that broken, humble, poor in spirit place. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's point number two. You can't be comforted if you're already comfortable. You can't be comforted if you're already comfortable. And there's two parts to this, and I'll talk about both of them. But God will often take us out of our comfort zone so that he can comfort us. See, God doesn't want us to find our comfort in this world. He wants to be our comfort in this world. So, so often he'll take us out of our comfort zone so that we learn to find our comfort in him. Sometimes he'll put us in situations where we're very discontent so that we find our contentment with him. This is what he did with Paul the Apostle. We look at Paul the Apostle and he's like, dude, that's the greatest disciple that ever lived. But Paul wasn't perfect and he says that. But he also says this in Philippians chapter 4, if you flip there. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. He says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He says, I've learned to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul learned contentment. What does that mean? He didn't always have it. How did God teach Paul contentment? Paul lost everything. He got put in situations that were extremely uncomfortable. When you think about the shipwrecks and the lashings and the imprisonments and all these different things that Paul faced, it says he learned Contentment. It took him time. So often God will take us out of our comfort zone, put us in a place that's not really a, um, a place that we find in contentment so that we'll find our comfort and contentment in him. And then he says the verse that gets taken out of context almost more than any other verse in the Bible, I think. It says, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's he talking about? He's talking about contentment. So when people, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's true to a degree. doesn't mean I can jump off of a building and I can fly because God will, Christ will strengthen me. No, he's saying I can be content in prison. I can be content with no food. I can be content with a lot of food because my contentment is not contingent upon my circumstances. My contentment is contingent upon my relationship with Christ. No matter what I, a situation I find myself in, I'm content with the Lord because that's something that's not going to change. The Lord's not going to change. My circumstances will change. Christ, He will not change. So the Lord, He says, Paul learned contentment, okay, from being taken out of his comfort zone. But it wasn't just for Paul to learn contentment, it was so that Paul can learn that his comfort and contentment were in Christ so that he could be there to comfort others, right? It's Second Corinthians chapter one. Second Corinthians chapter one. Verse three it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Sometimes God will allow us to go through things, trials, tribulations, so that in the future we can comfort others who go through the same thing. So often we can walk through a hard time and be like, God, why would you do this to me? But so often God will use those hard times and teach us things, teach us things like contentment and where our comfort truly lies so that we can be there to comfort the next believer that's walking through a similar thing. So God will bring us to a place of mourning so that we can find our comfort in him. And once we learn that and find that comfort in him, we can bring that comfort to someone else. And this could apply to so many different things losing uh, losing a loved one um, my wife just lost her her mother um, so this is very like real and, and we're at the uh, I don't understand why all this happened like I, I don't get it I, I don't know God hasn't given me the answers but I know what I know what the truth of the scripture is, and I know somehow, some way, God's going to use this thing in our lives to be able to be there for someone else who faces a similar tragedy, because that's what happened for us. We had people in our lives that were able to bring that comfort to us that faced a similar tragedy. This could be losing a loved one, this could be an abusive relationship, this could be addiction, this could be broken homes. We look at some of those hard times in our life and we're like, God, why'd you allow that to happen to me? But so often when we look back, we see that God used those hard times in our life so that we could be there for others that face the same thing. And when we look back, it's not like, oh, I'm glad this thing happened, but we say, even though this thing happened and it wasn't a bad thing, I saw that God did work all things together for good, and he is using this situation for good. And how he's using that is he's allowing me to be there for someone else that's in need. Okay, So this, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, it doesn't just apply to heartache and heartbreak, uh, but it also applies to our sin. In fact, the word mourn here uh, is the most powerful word for mourn or sadness in the Greek. It's the same word that they use for mourning over a lost one that you love, like mourning over a family member, mourning over death itself. That's the same word that Jesus uses here. This is the type of mourning he wants us not only... He doesn't just bring us to a place of mourning so that we find our comfort in Him. He wants us to mourn over our sinful nature. He wants us to mourn over our sinful condition. Why? He used the word mourn, the same word that they use for mourning death, because He wants us to recognize the death that's brought about by sin. See, He wants to bring us to a place that we're mourning over our sinful state as if we lost someone. Because in our sinful state, we have. We've lost the one that loves us the most. What do I mean? Sin separates us from God. He wants to bring us to that place of mourning over sin, recognizing we lost the one that loves us the most so that we cry out to him and he'll bring us that, to that place of comfort. He'll come and comfort us. Jesus will always come to comfort the repentant sinner. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. It says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness, um, the word meekness, it, it means power under control or strength under control. This is the third point. <clears throat> Meekness is stronger than it looks. Meekness is stronger than it looks. It's it's power under control. So a couple of terms ago, um, in Patmos we were in El Salvador for uh, two terms. We had this student named Jacob. Okay, he looked like a D lineman or an offensive lineman. He's about 6'4, 275 pounds old country boy from Georgia. You could barely understand anything. Say, he was saying, like, this is an example. you would say, who ain't went? Who ain't went? What's that mean? Okay, well, in English, that means they haven't gone. Who hasn't gone yet? Okay, this is just some of the phrases that Jacob would have. Hilarious, just this big dude, like, you'd be crying, laughing, just spending any amount of time with him at all. He had this passion uh, for children, Okay, He was called to children's ministry. He still is. He's doing children's ministry now. but I remember one time, the first time I saw him with kids, uh, we were doing an outreach there in El Salvador. These kids don't understand a lick of anything he's saying. he doesn't understand them. but I see him engage with these kids, and at first I'm like a little, a little afraid he starts wrestling with them on the ground. And I'm like, dude, if Jacob, 275 pounds rolls over one of these kids, they're dead. They're gone. Like, there's no coming back from that unless Jesus tries to... It's not happening. And the Lord spoke to me. Meekness. There's your illustration for meekness. It was power under control. He knew what he was doing. He was strong. One slight little move, and he would have killed one of these children. We probably wouldn't have Patmos anymore. Um, But he had this strength, this power under control. And that's what this word meekness is. The best example or illustration we have of meekness is the cross. It's Christ, it's power under control. In John chapter 10, verse 17, he says, I lay down my life. Not the Roman soldiers took his life, not Caiaphas. Not the Jewish leaders in authority. Jesus laid down his life. He gave his spirit to God. He commended his spirit. They didn't take his life. He gave it willingly. He had the power to take himself off the cross. He had the power to call down legions of angels to destroy those Roman soldiers. He could have done anything he wanted in that moment, but he laid down his power. Jesus proved his power by laying it down, not exercising it. It takes more strength to hold back your power than it does to display it. That's meekness. It's stronger than it looks. But he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus displayed meekness. He wants us to carry that character. If we want to operate in his strength, we need to be emptied of ourselves. We need to, like Jesus, following his example, lay down our strength, lay down our power, because that takes greater strength, and that's what meekness is. But operating in this character of meekness, it takes trust. It takes faith. It takes believing that the Lord is going to provide for that strength that you laid down. And that's one of the foundations of this entire teaching of Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount is, hey, you need to lay down your life for you to be able to operate in my power to live out this Christian constitution. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Okay, let's think context here. The disciples just walked up this mountain, okay? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You climb up a mountain, you walk up a a big hill, anything like that, what what, what happens to you? You're tired, you're probably hungry. You're probably thirsty. Like, I don't even, I I don't understand. The altitude here is so tough to deal with. The hills, like, I could run miles back in Florida. I get up here, I run a quarter of a mile up a hill, and I'm dying. I literally feel like I'm dying. Running these hills around here, it's crazy. Takes so much more out of you. Jesus brings them up this mountain. He brings them up this hill, and then he says, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. you think they're a little hungry? you think they're a little thirsty? What he's saying is, think about how hungry and how thirsty you are right now. Take that, and let's make it spiritual. Hunger and thirst for righteousness like you hunger and thirst for food and water in this very moment. This is point number four. Hungering for righteousness leads to fulfillment. Hungering for the word of God and for the will of God. Who's passionate about food? Raise your hand. I know all of Patmos, you better just raise your hands right now. They are passionate people when it comes to food. Jesus is saying, I want you to have as much passion for my word and my will as you do for food. Like you have to look at it as a necessity. You have to look at it as, I can't live without this thing. They don't eat lunch and they're freaking out. <laughs> Jesus is like, no, hey, look at what he did to the disciples. Half the time he's not feeding them. <laughs> but this is the reality. He wants us to take that passion that we have for the things that we need to survive and recognize we need those spiritual things even more. And he doesn't just say this, he does this. If you remember uh, John chapter 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He meets the Samaritan woman. It says that Jesus was weary. He's fully God, but he's also fully man, remember. He's weary, he's tired, he's hungry. He goes into the Samaritan village and he sends his disciples out. He doesn't tell them what he's sending them out for. They go and get food. What does Jesus do? He engages... With this woman at the well. Then, when the disciples come back, they say, Hey, aren't you hungry? He says, I have food of which you do not know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. What is he talking about? My food, my satisfaction, my fulfillment comes from walking out God's word and God's will in my life. The disciples are like, dang, we blew it. But Jesus had a valuable lesson. He sets the perfect example. Jesus satisfied his hunger to do God's will by submitting to God's word. And that's what he wants us, that's what he desires for us to do as well. Verse 7, Matthew chapter 5. It says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This is point number five. There's eight points altogether. We have to receive mercy before we can extend mercy. Our ability to give mercy is contingent upon our ability to receive mercy. Why? You can't give what you don't have. If I haven't received the mercy of God, I can't extend the mercy of God. I have to first receive the mercy of God. I have to first believe that I'm forgiven before I can extend mercy and forgiveness. Our action to give mercy gives others the ability to see Jesus. When we give mercy, people see Jesus. It's an opportunity. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Why? Because you're a citizen of the kingdom. I'm all about mercy. You extend mercy, and people are going to see me in you. You extend forgiveness. Forgiveness is a powerful thing, right? You extend forgiveness. You're like, what? You're gonna forgive me for that? Like, you you shouldn't forgive me. I know, but I shouldn't be forgiven either. And when we operate in that forgiveness, we operate in that mercy. People get to see Jesus. Matthew chapter five, verse eight, says, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God." That's point number six. Purity brings clarity. Purity brings clarity. What does this mean? The pure in heart, they have a sincere devotion to God. It's not about ulterior motives. It's not about what they can gain by serving and seeking God. They just want to know God. They just want to see God. And that's their goal. That's their purpose, is to see God as He is. But before I can see God as He is, I have to first see myself. As I am. Why? Because there's a lot of impurities. Blessed are the pure in heart. We're becoming pure in heart. God, positionally, he says, pure, righteous, holy. But practically, he's making us pure. He's making us righteous. He's making us holy. So what do I mean? It's Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. When we have impurities in our life, we can't see God clearly. It's foggy. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face, as we become more pure, we see God more clearly. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When we come to the Lord with sincerity and we have a desire to live in purity, we're going to see God more clearly. We're going to hear God more clearly. We're going to see his hand work and move in our lives. But he puts it on us. Hey, if you want to see God, pursue purity my desire to see god will be revealed through my effort to live a pure lifestyle if i truly want to see god and i know what the scripture says that blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god then i'm going to, i want to see god do you guys want to see god like i would love i want to see god i want to see god in my life i want to see god face to face when i see god working in my life it motivates me it encourages me i'm inspired But when we walk in impurity, it starts to get a little dim. It starts to get a little foggy. It's like driving down the mountain yesterday. Anybody drive down the mountain yesterday? Brutal, right? I could barely see the car in front of me. I'm driving by faith and not by sight. It's like, really, that's that's how it is around here, I feel like, half the time. But it's like, man, if I walked in purity, maybe I would see these cars in front of me better. But that's the nature of our walk. We bring those clouds on the mountain. We bring those clouds into in front of the direction that we're headed. And it makes it harder. What happens when you're driving down the mountain and you have all those clouds, all that fog? You got to slow down, right? Can't go as fast. What happens when it's clear? You guys are like zoom, flying down the mountain, flashing your your bright side people, so they take the turnout lanes, right? You can go faster, you can move forward, you can get to the place that God called you to at a faster at a at a faster pace, quicker. You can get to that sanctification through the sanctification process quicker. When we bring impurity into our lives, we're just slowing down the sanctification process. It's like, yeah, be confident of this very thing that you who began a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We can be confident of that, but we also can slow down that process based on how we live our lives. He's going to complete the work. I don't know. I'm an A to B guy. I'd rather get from A to B as quick as possible. And if I'm bringing impurities into my life and recognize that slowing me down, God, take those, like rid me of those impurities, purge me of those things because I want to see you face to face and I want to get to the place That you're calling me to get. Matthew chapter five, verse nine. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's the seventh point. Peace is cost peace. Peace. Peace is costly. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is referred to as what? The Prince of Peace, this prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the Prince of Peace. But that title, it cost him his life. What he did to bring peace to this earth, it cost him everything. Peace is going to cost us too. We can only have peace with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 1. I'll just read it for you. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We only have peace with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. And because peace cost Him, the rightful assumption is that peace is, peace is going to cost us too. In fact, Paul says it in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says, As much as depends on you, live at peace with all men. It's not as much as depends on them, live at peace with me. It's your responsibility to pursue peace with all men. And when we pursue peace with all men, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Pursuing peace, it's not always... That means all men. All men means all men. When you see that word all, you probably heard this before, All, in the Greek, it means all. So all men, it's all men, it's everyone. It's every single person, even the people that you hate, even the people you don't get along with. Pursue peace with all men. Pursuing peace with all men, it might cost you. You might have to sacrifice your peace for their peace. It's going to be hard. But he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God when we're walking in peace, when we're pursuing peace, we're, rec- or we're reflecting our Father in heaven. This is where we'll close this last <clears throat> beatitude. I was going to leave this one for Pastor Adam. Um, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a tough one. This is what Jesus says. He leads up to this. There's all these like blessings like heaven and being comforted and the earth and righteousness and all these things. And then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. You're blessed when you're persecuted. (laughs) It's true. Um, When we live out the beatitudes, when we live out this worshipful lifestyle, we can expect to be persecuted. Why? Think about context. We're talking about the rightful king is coming back to reclaim what was his. Jesus comes back. He's reclaiming it. Jesus is reclaiming the earth. Who has dominion? over the earth right now. Satan, right? The prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. Satan's the king that reigns right now. So when we, in a sense, rebel against the king in place and we choose to worship the rightful king, that other king, he's going to get a little upset. It doesn't go with the way he wanted things to work. Out in this world. When we stop worshipping the world and we start worshiping the Lord, we can expect persecution because we're going against the God of this world. We're going against the God of this age. So this is the eighth point. Expect and embrace persecution. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Paul writes to Timothy. Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a promise from Paul. It's also a promise from Jesus in John chapter 16 verse 33. He says, "In this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world." It's going to happen. We can expect it. It's like we hear about the promises of God and we like think, "Man, the promises of God, they're so great." But when you look at that one, it's like Name and claim that one. In the name of Jesus, tribulation? No, I don't think so, right? But it's a promise. We should expect it because Jesus said that it's going to happen. In fact, persecution is evidence that we're living for Jesus. If he says that it's going to happen and it's never happened, I'm not saying that it needs to happen all the time or, or you're not following Jesus, but if this is the truth of Scripture and we're facing it, it should actually build confidence in us. It should be like, God fulfills his word, even the ones we don't like. There's a lot of things that God says that I don't really like. But the truth of the matter is, when he's fulfilling his word, I can have confidence that he means what he says and he's going to fulfill every jot, every tittle that comes out of his mouth and that was written. He's a man of his word. He says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Not only can we expect it we ought to embrace it and he says rejoice and be exceedingly glad why it's 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 13 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 13 he says Peter writes, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. When we partake in his sufferings, we partake in his glory. Suffering leads to glory. He said, The world hated me. You can expect it to hate you as well. But when we're facing persecution, when we're facing suffering... As crazy as it sounds, that's a clear indicator that we're on the right track. We're acting like heavenly citizens. And I'm not saying suffering because of, of sin in our lives. I'm saying suffering for righteousness' sake. I'm saying persecution for His name's sake. When we're facing those things, we recognize, hey, this is what happened to Him So this is what's going to happen to me, but he also resurrected from the dead, and that happened to him, so that's going to happen to me. So it lets us know, it shows us that we're on the right track. We see an example of this in Acts chapter 5, and this is where we'll close. Acts chapter 5. Verse 40, it says... The disciples are are facing persecution. It's uh, running rampant. The church is spreading. And now we see in verse 40, it says, And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Okay, so persecution. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name they rejoiced because God counted them worthy to suffer for his name. The fact that God would bring you through persecution is evidence that he has faith in you. He believes in you. He believes that you can endure it. He believes that you can get through it. So they God thought that He saw fit that we walk through this, that we could be counted worthy to suffer like Christ suffered. He thought we could handle this. And by the power of His Spirit, we were able to walk through this suffering. And then look what happens in verse 42. It says, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They kept going. Not only did they rejoice in it, They didn't allow fear to prevent them from what God had called them to do. They continued on. Despite the consequences, despite the persecution, despite every single thing they were faced with, they didn't operate in fear. They operated by faith. They were able to turn the world upside down because of it. I pray that we would be people that would operate in the same faith that no matter what comes our way, we would choose to have these worshipful lifestyles that we would magnify the rightful king. Recognizing the present king is going to probably put a target on our back. But what am I going to be led by? Fear or faith? Jesus says, this is how we worship the Lord with our lives. I want to choose to worship the Lord like Jesus did with my life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these beatitudes, God. We know um, there's so much depth, Lord. We could talk about each one for a whole day, God but I pray with the things that you've spoken to me, God, the things that you've spoken to us, that we would purpose to apply these things, God, that we wouldn't just hear them, that they wouldn't just go in one ear and out the other, Lord, but they would change us from within, and there would be evidence that it changes us from within in the way that we live these worshipful lifestyles, God. Give us the power of your spirit to worship you with our lives, that everything we do... We would be intentional. We would do for your glory and your honor and not just for ourselves. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.